anger is permeating our culture. Whether it is in the political arena, playgrounds, road streets, or in our personal relationships with destructive effects, are we ignoring it? And is there an answer to this? I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. And with me today is Dr. Bernard Golden, founder of Anger Management Education and the author of Overcoming Destructive Anger, Strategies That Work. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Golden. Thank you very much for having me. To begin with, what prompted you to write this particular book, and who do you feel it's directed to? There were professional influences that involved, for example, I worked in psychiatric settings in the 70s and 80s, and I put together a 45-minute class on anger management, and over the years that enlarged and uh, helped provide a variety of strategies to deal with anger. Personally, I have to say that in hindsight, uh, I observed the anger of my parents, and I felt that their bickering, and especially the anger directed toward each other, really interfered with having a more fulfilling life. And I gradually became angry at their anger, so to speak. And uh, so over the years, have wanted to help people who are distracted by anger to find ways to deal with it and to then, again, have a more fulfilling life in a variety of ways. This is for people who may find themselves being called a hothead or the anger goes from zero to 60 very quickly. Maybe they become angry uh, several times a day or, or over a week time. Or their anger is uh, sometimes in one setting. For example, I see people and work with people who are angry only in their personal relationships with their loved ones. Some are angry at work, in personal relationships, and in other daily activities. So it's for a broad variety of people who are dealing with this issue. The people who have this short fuse like you just described, really feel empowered, that they have a right to be angered. How do you interfere with that? How do you separate that from their entitlement? One of the actions that uh, involves reducing that sense of entitlement is helping people learn to pause, to reflect on their anger rather than react to it. This is a gradual process because anger and how we respond to it especially when there's a short fuse, involves a habit. It's a habit of feeling and thinking. And I help people recognize anger as a signal to turn inward and focus on what's going on inside rather than on the person or situation that has created or led to their anger. And looking inside, they can then see that anger is very much a feeling of being threatened at times when there's no real threat but it's also a reaction to other negative feelings like uh, anxiety, uh, fear, uh, feeling devalued or shame. And those feelings for many people with anger issues are so uncomfortable to sit with that they act out on the anger rather than sitting with those feelings. The sense of entitlement often comes about that we identify feelings we identify ourselves. If I'm feeling angry, then I'm angry, and you're right. I, I feel I deserve to act on it versus I'm feeling angry, period, <laughs> end of story, and then dealing with what is going on in terms of my expectations. What is my conclusion? Was it uh, logical? Was it re realistic? 
What was it a knee-jerk conclusion I made about a tree ring event? Yeah, I see. So you have to step back. You know, as I read your book, uh, I'm uh, an advocate of yoga and meditation, and I thought how much uh, your techniques and strategy uh, seem to come from the East. How did you come to this conclusion of m- melding or bringing together, combining the the Eastern science, shall we say, or the evidence-based science with what we have learned from the East that is so helpful? Uh, over the years, I've always emphasized the use of mindfulness, but not to the degree that I have in recent years as my own thinking and practice have evolved. Uh, I, I practice uh, mindfulness meditation, perhaps not as often as I'd like to, but I do do it fairly routinely. I practice it informally, meaning that during the day I, I will take moments to pause and turn inward and say, what am I feeling right now? What are my thoughts? And as I've integrated the mindfulness practices into my practice, I've seen people who help take that moment to pause by having practice, often yoga, formal mindful meditation, sitting exercises, tending to the breath, they're able to pause for that nanosecond that is necessary to turn and direct their attention inward. Similarly, uh, for many years, I would encourage my clients to talk to themselves from their most compassionate, parental, nurturing self. I've always felt that the feelings need to be addressed and not just their thinking. And that when they speak to themselves from this compassionate self, that part of them that can be parental, nurturing, and warm and affectionate, uh, they can help soothe the feeling of discomfort. And so besides uh, mindfulness, I've also integrated practices in developing compassion skills or inner or self-compassion skills. So it's okay to be nice to yourself. It is. And uh, one of the challenges is that when people hear the word self-compassion, they often think self-indulgence. And it's very different. Self-compassion involves that inner voice that says, you may feel like doing something now, but what is in your long-term interest? So self-compassion really overrides that the momentary feeling, whether it has to do with uh, reacting to anger or, or other habits. And similarly, they found in studies that people who are actually more self-compassionate have a greater resilience uh, emotionally than people who have self-esteem, uh, high, heightened self-esteem. It's, it's a better marker of emotional resilience. And similarly, they're more responsible. Dan Harris, an ABC News reporter, wrote an interesting book recently called The 10% Solution. And he talks about the positive aspects of mindful meditation. And I was impressed with one of his struggles because it seems to be a struggle for anyone practicing mindfulness meditation, is that I'll lose my competitive edge. And uh, being self-compassionate doesn't mean that one has to give up all competition, but to be more aware of what competition is taking over control of our sense of self-worth. Yeah, you talk uh, about the prairie dog syndrome, which is this uh, always feeling threatened and that I won't win. How do you deal with this? What is a strategy to deal with that particular thing that's so embedded often from our past? I use the term prairie dog syndrome, and I I, I want people, you will never see it in the diagnostic uh, annual. Uh, The idea of that little prairie dog animal always on its haunches waiting for some threat. 
brought about by sometimes our earlier experiences being on God. Maybe people have had uh, real trauma. And it leads to a, a lower threshold of kind of like a thermostat. It leads to a lower threshold in our sense of feeling threatened when, in fact, it may not be a threat. We feel threat to ourselves physically, emotionally, sometimes to our resources, including finances, our things, and we feel threat regarding our loved ones. And so part of that self-reflection involves recognizing, am I really threatened or am I perceiving it as such? Uh, part of the strategies then for dealing with anger involve learning physical relaxation exercises long before we're confronted with a triggering event. So the more we rehearse becoming relaxed in our body, we can evoke that same relaxation when we're experiencing these uncomfortable feelings. And uh, with practice, uh, it becomes a skill that uh, is embedded in muscle memory and very practical and useful at the moment when anger is beginning to arise. The whole emphasis being I need to relax my mind and body at the beginning of the trajectory of anger before it goes further. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, and I am your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining us today is Dr. Bernard Golden, author of Overcoming Destructive Anger and Strategies That Work. Before change can come, as, as I listen to you talk, before change comes, you have to have identified that there's something wrong, that this anger is painful, and that it is more painful than the alternatives of this self-awareness. As I read your book, you know, you talk about an anger log, taking time to step away, to be self-reflective. How do you do this amid this turbulent flow of emotions that are taking place as the heat rises inside your brain? Right. The use of the anger log is actually a way to look at a, a, an event, an episode of anger. Long after it's happened and when you've calmed down, it's meant to both reflect on the past event and by completing the log, prepare people to be more mindful, more aware of their next time. And so the log involves having individuals recall the triggering event, their interactions, their reactions, as if it's on an imaginary video. But this video includes being able to attend to the details of their interactions as well as what's going on internally. So I initially have them identify a triggering event and give a rating for their level of anger. And then I ask them to rewind that video ever so slightly as if they were moving it frame by frame to help them identify the negative feelings that precede anger. This is difficult for a lot of people for a variety of reasons. For some people, anger is so much more comfortable as you than feeling, like you say, the inner pain of these other feelings. And so some of my clients will say, I can't identify what that feeling is. And so I very often use a feelings list. And very quickly they say, oh, of course, this is what I was feeling. I was feeling ignored. I was feeling devalued. I was feeling uh, powerless. And it's through that practice that they can become more aware for the next time. The log also includes what was their knee-jerk thought regarding the triggering event, 
And very importantly, what was their expectation? We carry with us expectations very often not only that are unrealistic, but that come from our emotional mind. For example, I worked with a client who said that his wife is always late, 40 minutes late for every event. And I asked him, how long has that been going on? Well, I'm married 18 years, he replied. (laughs) (laughs) And so here he was, still expecting that she'd be on time. And I said, you know, you're holding on too rigidly to that expectation. Unless you try some entirely new (laughs) way of reacting to her or interacting. Similarly, we expect traffic at times to be uh, involved drivers who are cautious and courteous. And so I ask people what percentage of people drive that way, and they'll give me a low percentage. Yet when we're on the road, emotionally, we're expecting everyone to have caution and be courteous, forgetting the reality of the situation. So I help people tease out the uh, expectations. Again, the log is completed after the event with the indication of better understanding that and then being more mindful the next time. You talk in your book about that neuroscience has now shown that the brain really has some plasticity, that we really can relearn that what went on in your family home and your response and certainly what went on in my family home and my response and how I still carry it around at this advanced age uh, can be changed, can be modified, because we know that neuroscientifically. So tell me about the old brain and the new brain. How am I going to get my new brain to respond and change using mindfulness and self-awareness, but accepting the fact that I really can do this? The old brain is that area of the brain responsible for recognizing threat. And in a way, it uh, responds without consulting the new brain, which is involved with the prefrontal cortex, involved with reasoning, logic, problem solving. And the challenge is when we practice new skills and we engage in new thinking, we strengthen and increase the number of neuronal connections in the brain. And when we do that, we strengthen the likelihood, the the probability, the capacity for then thinking and behaving in those same ways. So basically when we behave and think in certain ways, we train the brain to be more responsive, to make us more prone to think and behave in those ways. They've done studies in terms of neuroplasticity, for example, of people who play piano. And these people have a larger area of their brain devoted to motor coordination of hand and fingers. So in the same way, we and cultivate new, new connections that make the likelihood stronger for pausing rather than reacting to anger. You know, I'm an internist, and our audience are mainly healthcare deliverers. How might a physician use your book in practice? And then, of course, as a corollary, how might he use it personally? Because if I talk to my colleagues, there is certainly veiled anger, disappointment, and even, I would say, depression professionally in particular. So it's a two-edged. How does he use it in practice? And how about my colleagues, my friends, use it personally? The goal would be to be aware that anger is about not feeling safe. And if I could relate to the patient in ways that help promote their sense of safety, that help promote their sense of feeling understood, recognized, validated, that's going to decrease their sense of threat 
and, and increased safety. It may involve moving around the table and having eye contact. It might involve, uh, and this is the challenge, uh, to look away from the monitor <laughs> that they're entering the data on and have increased eye contact. But any way that the physician can help clients, patients feel safe is a way of reducing the likelihood of their anger and addressing any concern that they have. You may, for example, if a patient is expressing anger, recognize it. Say, I, I understand you. I can tell you're angry, and I can't read your mind, but maybe you're feeling hurt or ignored. Can we talk about that? Having said that, in terms of how does a physician deal with the pressures of maybe having a 10-minute allotment of time for each patient and things like that, uh, it's all a matter of expectations and being mindful of expectations may be parallel. What I mean by that is I have an expectation from uh, where I'm working, the work setting, I have an expectation of time commitment, and that might compete with the reality about what my need for this client is, how much time I need to spend with a client, how to explain a certain diagnosis, and that those expectations may compete and put uh, unnecessary pressure on the physician become irritated, to feel powerless, to feel even inadequate. And I think helping a physician be more aware of that and, again, learning ways ahead of time to calm and become more relaxed in body and mind, that enables both self-compassion and compassion for the patient as well. Before we leave this subject, we can't leave it on a negative note. I'd like you because that might make me angry. No, I'm just kidding, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, could, could you define, as we leave this subject, what is healthy anger? Not all anger is a negative. I see anger as, again, it's uh, experiencing it without being overwhelmed by it and reacting to it. Anger, healthy anger involves acting from compassion. Because anger is about inner pain, and so when we act from compassion, it's healthy anger. When we act... In a destructive way, I call it self-compassion going awry. Healthy anger also means recognizing anger as a signal to explore feelings, thoughts, and body sensations that precede it, and also looking at the core desires that I feel are being threatened. Healthy anger calls for developing self-compassion, and that includes skills to help us feel safe and connected, and that's what helps physically feel calm. It includes skills to let go of anger, and that may include forgiveness. It includes encompassing practices that reflect compassion to others as well, and it includes learning how to communicate assertively with others. Well, your book certainly made us visit the idea that anger can be aggressive, silenced, denied, that this corrosive fury can be transformed into something healthy thanks to the brain's plasticity and the coping strategies that you've outlined for us to empower us. Thank you very much, Dr. Golden, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me.